This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. People in therapy or on a spiritual path are often under the mistaken notion that getting enlightened means no longer having to deal with the full range of emotions. They hope that enlightenment will mean living in a permanent state of bliss, which they translate as feeling high all the time, like on the best combination of drugs. In fact, they often begin using meditation and its special states of consciousness to hide out from any emotional experience. You can't stifle, suppress, or repress your own emotions. Instead, you must learn how to feel your feelings and interpret their purpose skillfully. Valeria interviews Jonathan Labman. He is the author of A Therapist's Guide to Being Human and Waking Up. In 1992, Jonathan received his license as a massage therapist in New York State. He worked as a licensed massage therapist full-time, while studying and getting certified in energy healing from 1995 to 1998 and taking two graduate courses in counseling at NYU. In 1998, Jonathan returned to graduate school for a Master of Art with a concentration on counseling psychology. Following that, in 2000, he took a 500-hour Yoga Alliance certification as a yoga teacher. Jonathan was in private practice as a counseling psychologist from 2000 to 2008 and then returned to corporate life for supervision hours towards a license. He began that process as an employee assistance program specialist at United Behavioral Health in Philadelphia in 2008 and completed it as an outpatient counselor at the Penn Foundation Recovery Center. Upon licensure in late 2010, Jonathan became the director for the Trauma Treatment Project at the Penn Foundation from 2011 to 2013. There he worked with a team to implement changes in policies, procedures, and clinical skills to make Penn Foundation a trauma-informed care center of excellence. He was, and still is, a supervisor for clinician licensure, ran the Adult Trauma Treatment Supervision Group, created lectures and trainings on trauma-informed and trauma-specific care, and specialized in individual and group work for people with a history of trauma. Jonathan served on the Montgomery County Trauma-Informed Services Committee and Training Subcommittee and served on the Bucks County Trauma Steering Committee. Jonathan also completed the ASSIST, Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training, workshop, and then the ASSIST T4T, Training for Teachers, in Denver, Colorado. In 2013, Jonathan returned to private practice work as a licensed professional counselor and spiritual mentor in his private practice, Simply Awake, LLC. He has run small groups in spiritual awakening since 2001, taught meditation to hundreds of people, including Bucks County administrative staff and at the Doylestown Hospital Community Health Series, and worked with people using the principles of transpersonal psychology. Jonathan says, 
I have studied human development in its many dimensions for 50 years. I have an entire album of credentials and academic degrees that you may review in my consulting office in Holly Kong, Buckingham Township. And I'll be happy to answer any professional questions you have. I have been in the human service fields for over 31 years. I have worked with everyone from wealthy heirs of family fortunes to successful business people wanting to find meaning in their lives, to famous artists and writers, to people on welfare because their jobs were shipped overseas. Meet Jonathan at simplyawake.com. Here's the interview with Jonathan Labman. In your own words, who is Jonathan Labman? Well, Jonathan Labman is both the eternal, absolute being and this individual 68-year-old man with uh, his own unique history. I know we have been talking off-record here for a moment, but how did you come to this deep understanding? I would actually call it knowledge, this true knowledge about your own nature. Well, I started out um, having a very difficult childhood, and there was abuse, and there was bullying, and then at about 15, I sent a prayer into the ethers, not knowing whether there was anyone to listen, and I got an extraordinary answer, because I was offered a scholarship to international school in Wales, in the UK, uh, where I went for two years, and when I got that scholarship, and they had told me it was going to be impossible. Mm-hmm. I knew then that there was something at work beyond me, mm-hmm. and that started me on a spiritual search that took me through. Um, I had started out in Judaism uh, because of my family, and it took me through evangelical Christianity, even living in a community that became a cult, into the Eastern traditions, and then finally in about 2001 into an understanding that the awareness in me is the same as the awareness that is the entire universe. And so that was, as briefly as I can. Mm -hmm, Yes, yes. There was 2021. And did that come from some more studies, let's say religious or spiritual studies, or uh, did you come to this deep realization on your own? It it actually came um, through many different religious studies. In college, I was going to go to seminary and be a minister. So I studied Old and New Testament and tried to have a relationship with the divine in that way. And then when I finished that and I lived in community, I was trying to find an intense relationship with the divine again. When that failed, uh, and they turned out to be so fear-oriented, I left that. Eventually, I went to, if you can believe it, to acting school in New York City to learn method acting. And there I learned about how it was to be alive in each moment. And a few years after I quit acting because I didn't like the whole lifestyle and I didn't want to be a performer, then my, one of my voice teachers called me and said, oh, there are these wonderful people who are teaching us how to live in the moment every day. And they were students of Paul Lowe, who was one of the lieutenants of Sri Bhagavan Rajneesh, or Osho. And so they taught me initially how to meditate and how to be in touch with what was beyond words. 
And then through tradition of um, learning energy healing and learning and understanding that I could affect someone's energy across the room or across the country because we were the same consciousness, that prepared me then for the realization through yoga philosophy and a group called, in those days, Waking Down to Mutuality, that that awareness in me was the core of what I was and that that was also everything that I was looking at out of my eyes. So I'm the awareness and I'm looking at everything else that's also the awareness. And that's not just then an intellectual study, although there was a lot of that, a lot of reading. There's also a graduate degree right before that when I wrote a thesis on the compatibility of yoga and psychotherapy. So there was all that going on, and then the awakening happened in the summer of 2001, in July. And after that, I thought, oh, I'm done, right? But of course, you know, you're never really done. And so now these these last 20-some years has been a whole additional exploration, both reading and studying and also sitting with some wonderful teachers. Uh, one was Adya Shanti, who you might know of. Another was a man named David LaChapelle, a group called Vortex Healing recently, and now a group called Metatronic Living. And all these are kind of giving me more fine-tuning in the process of internal awakening and then also how to reach others in terms of helping them to wake up. What can I say? It's beautiful to listen to you explain, the, in a way, the process, the journey, which is really of unlearning, isn't it? Yeah, most, most of everything that we think is, is baloney, to be polite. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, that's it. So I would love for you to describe the experience before and after. What fundamentally changed within the experience, your human experience, especially when it comes to feelings and emotions? I think that um, before awakening, uh, feelings and emotions are what we identify with as well as our thoughts. And so it's as if the, the whole center of gravity is in the mind and often the mind generates thoughts and those thoughts are often false, and those false thoughts generate feelings. And of course, I learned about that because in actor's training, you have to be able to generate emotion basically from an imaginary scene that you create in your mind. And so before awakening, life is all about what's going on in the ego and the mind and the emotions and the body, and all of that is what I am. And then after awakening, what I am is that which is aware of or registers all of that experience arising. And the center of gravity gradually shifts from thought, feeling, and sensation to the awareness that's aware of thought, feeling, and sensation. And then, you know, as you explore awareness, you begin to understand it has no physical boundaries. There's no boundary between the awareness inside of me and outside of me. And there is also no sense of time in the awareness within. So it is in its most uh, purely felt sense uh, eternal. And so the shift is, is that. And then, of course, there's all the purification of everything that you identified with before. 
So the emotions become less threatening after awakening because they're no longer considered the me or the I. Right. That really resonates. And I guess the question that comes to mind that probably a lot of people might have too is that um, we become less identified, yes, with emotions and feelings, but they're still there. So we, we still honor them, right, oh, yeah. Jonathan? We... Yeah, and, and, and the point of the emotion, and that I, this I learned from the trauma treatment specialist, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He said that emotion is actually the brain's way of moving you in a new direction. So if you think of emotion as energy in motion, that would be a good way to think of it. And so you need to be aware of it, but you also need to be aware of the energy in motion that originates in false thoughts versus the energy in motion that originates right in your lived and felt moment-to-moment -moment experience. So if I invent the idea that my uh, grandmother died and, you know, I, I get hysterical about, oh, my God, what am I going to do with my grandma without my grandmother in my life? Right. That's a kind of emotion that is real and is felt, but is useless because it's based on a falsehood. If my grandmother really dies and I have the terrible heartbreak and the blackness of mood of losing somebody that I really loved that's a real emotion based on a real cause and the real cause then or the truth and what it reveals about me and what it moves me to do that's the emotion i want to use for change in my life that's some um, in your uh, new book title a therapist's guide to being human and waking up you do outline the difference between these two kinds of emotions, uh, chapter eight and chapter nine, I believe. Yes, lie-based emotions, you call them, and true-based emotions. So I'll come back to them. Do you actually see the difference between feelings and emotions, or they are one and the same from yeah. your perspective? Well, I use the word emotions to distinguish that from physical feelings or sensations, because in the English language, we're, we're using the word feeling for both physical sensation and emotional sensation. And so actually emotions are a subset of physical sensations that we label in a very particular way. And so I like to make a distinguish in, uh, distinguishment in my language between emotion and feeling. Feeling being generally any physical sensation, including emotion, and then emotion being very specific kinds of physical sensation. Right, yeah. That also resonates true to me. I have heard this before from somebody else and it really mm -hmm. made sense. So you are a licensed professional counselor and spiritual mentor. Do you actually integrate the, uh, the, teach the spiritual teachings, the spiritual, let's say, principles into your counseling practice? Well, I do, them. <laughs> no, I do that overtly with anybody that wants me to include the spiritual dimension. But it, you know, whether I include it overtly or covertly, I mean, it's always where I'm coming from, but it may not be introduced to them unless they want to know about it. Uh, yes. So, so I'm, not, I'm not here to evangelize anybody like yes. I would have in the days when I was an evangelical Christian. 
<laughs> yes, that wouldn't be um, yeah, that wouldn't be kind <laughs> to do no, that. Nor ethical, right? Yes, <laughs> although we have this um, strong. I mean, my case, I have to say personally, this strong. Let's say longing to see other human beings around me, like my family member, to realize this truth, the truth of who they are, so they would suffer less. But it's, um, and I have been trying, and I sometimes I try too hard because I can't have, for some reason, I'm very bored around, uh, let's say, small conversations. I like right. deep conversations like the one we're having now and the ones in the podcast here. That's why I host this podcast. It's something that always kind of intrigues me that some people are not, they seem not to be ready. And I wonder why, why some of us are, are ready for these deep understandings and some are not. And sometimes they, they actually work, lose the body, not knowing and living in ignorance, basically ignoring what is true, what is real. So yeah, I would love to hear from you. What is your, um, what are your, th your thoughts about that? Um, well, I think that the divine as it separates into all these individual material objects that we call people has um, a very complex plan for us. And that is that some of us are first moving away from the divine, individuating, separating, and going against the very principles by which we're born. And that's our soul's journey away from the divine. And that at a certain point in our however many lifetimes we have, we turn back to the divine. And in the last few lifetimes before awakening, uh, then we become much more interested and much uh, more ready to listen and experience the, the divine. And so, you know, like you, I wished that I could share this with everybody. And when I first awakened, I thought, oh, everybody should know about this. Everybody wants to know about this. And if they don't know about this, they're missing out on the way, the, the greatest thing in life, right? But then I discover over time, uh, in fact, that lots of people are not interested at all. They're not ready. Or, you know, in the case of family members, they don't want to hear it from you because, uh, you know, they're in some ways perhaps in competition with you or, you know, they they don't want you to be better than them, and that might imply that you're better than them. And so, you know, you have to say, okay, <clears throat> what can I give the person in front of me? Right? I, I, I can give them love for sure. I can give them truth. But I have to give them love and truth at the level at which they're able to receive it. And if I don't do that, then I'm sort of bashing them over the head and or telling them that they're not good enough or that they should be doing it my way or, you know, one of those things. Yeah, that has been now my experience. Um, I'm a student of Vedanta, so um, you probably uh -huh. heard about Advaita Vedanta. So sure. that's, uh, it, it goes, I mean, to me, I have not found other philosophy, the spiritual philosophy that will go as deep as Vedanta does. Yeah. So I noticed that... Um, I tried first, yeah, of course, when I was in the very beginning, about 10 years ago, I was really um, kind of wanted to spread the good news. And that actually was not good news for so many people. I noticed that right away. <laughs> Life is a dream. You got to be kidding me. No. And then there was this rejection of, of that idea. And then now I see that um, the silence is, um, is actually the greatest teacher in a way it's the only yeah, he communicates that beautifully and 
what I do is um, I stopped talking to my husband about these things and I just kind of join him when he's watching a football game, which I have no interest in. But right. it, it, and then it starts to become fun, actually. And then I notice that the body-mind complex kind of uh, enjoying the experience. Right. And, and then I, I'm, I connect with him deeper in that sense. That's right. And so even if it seems to you like, oh, well, this is sort of inconsequential, unimportant, but it's the way that he can receive your love and your companionship and know that you care enough about him to spend time with him in the way that he enjoys it. Yes. And that's what the uh, something, the spiritual mind has yeah, talked to me about it, kind of the thoughts. It's interesting how it's uh, I know that a lot of meditators, they they wanted to come to the point of samadhi and kind of not having thoughts or having a so a clear, that pristine mind to the point of no thoughts, no, let's say, no experience at all of thinking. But there's something about the spiritual mind from what I see now that thoughts a lot of times these days, they feel like songs to me. They are like this beautiful music. <laughs> so it's not so bad to think. <laughs> and then when it comes to when it kind of the mind shifts in a way, it's giving more attention to consciousness. So, yeah, thoughts become much more pleasant, I would say. Well, and, and, you know, I think it's a mistake for us to believe that thoughts will entirely cease, given that we can only communicate with others via thought that's made into words. And mm. my experience is that I, yeah. I can be in, you know, very deep states of meditation and have been, but... In fact, my mind, even during deep states of meditation, the language generating part of my mind will continue to generate language. Whether I listen to it with my awareness and attention or not is another story. And so that's where we get the great break from the chattering voices. We say, I'm not listening. I'm listening to the birds singing in the garden. But I think the thoughts are, I think we, I certainly did at first, uh, my idea was that if I were to be spiritually awake, then the thoughts would just stop generating. And I've had periods where, you know, where thoughts stop generating for an hour or two, but, you know, it's my lived experience that, no, the thoughts will continue to generate. Our job is to determine whether what's generating is true or not. If it's not, I mean, of course, it's all removed from reality by one degree, but, you know, is the thought that I'm thinking true or is it a lie and or some form of a lie, a fantasy or, you know, a hope or a wish, but it's not really something that's happened. So I tell my uh, clients and students, you know, all my thoughts about the future are lies, except the idea that, you know, likely that the sun continues to rise in the morning and set. The physical laws seem to be intact, but beyond that, I can't really predict the future of in any way. So those thoughts, I think, you know, what we have to do with the thoughts is that we have to vet them and decide, okay, is this true or is this false? And that way, the thought is no longer useless or an impediment to spiritual growth. It's part of the experience of being a human and you know, if the divine hadn't wanted to think, wouldn't have made a mind that thinks. Mm, yeah. 
It is part of the experience, right? Um, yeah. Of um, I call it um, separated wholeness. <laughs> That's what we are. <laughs> right, separated right. wholeness, but within the dream, of course. Yeah, that is really the way Vedanta puts it. It's so clear to me. Yeah, it feels very much like a dream, this. So thoughts, recognize and kind of distinguish the true, if they're real, if they're, they are false, the same goes for emotions. I know that's the way you talked in your book. So what is a good example of that, um, Jonathan? I think I'm trying to uh, kind of pin down, kind of trying to make it simple in a way. Is that possible to kind of have some guiding principles that we can follow when it comes to thinking, emotions and feelings? Because I do have thoughts a lot of times that they predict the future and I do give attention to them because I know consciousness is everywhere. So when I, when I meditate, when I am in contact with some people and they have this very strong transmission, and then I kind of carry some of that and, and I see that I'm able to see, let's say I'm sleeping in the morning and then I know there's something, it's in front of my house. I can see what's happening. Oh, I can see, I can see the I as consciousness, can see it. And then I get up uh, later on, I don't know how long after, and then I see that that really happened. It was that maybe an hour ago was in front of my house. What I just, what just came to me as a vision. So how do we learn to? Because that could actually, in a way, be helpful in a sense of um, safety. Um, I'm not attached to the body of, in a sense of not want, not being afraid to die, but I would not want to lose the body unnecessarily or suffer or suffer unnecessarily. So. I tend to listen to those thoughts. I call them mystical, like mystical thoughts. So, yeah, talk to me about that for a moment. Well, so I think it's good to practice with intuition. And if you have mystical visions or thoughts, to then go and verify or validate something about them. Right. And if you can validate, you know, with normal three dimensional eyes, ears it's, and brain, that this thing actually happened in front of my house, then I know that I haven't made something up as a fantasy that I've actually had um, a sort of a visionary experience that I can verify and validate. Because, you know, lots of us would like to make believe that we can do all kinds of things. But in, in fact, if we, you know, if we then try over and over again to do them and we can't do them, then maybe we've made it up, you know. So with thoughts and with emotions, it's it's kind of a similar thing. It's like, okay, the thought arises. For instance, the thought, I use this one often, oh, there are alien bases on the dark side of the moon, <laughs> right? And yes. if, you know, if I really believed that, I would be immediately hysterical <laughs> and frightened out of my mind and terrorized. Either that or I'd be jumping for joy and waiting for them to save me, right? Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> that's an example of something that I can't uh -huh. verify or validate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I treat it as if it's not true. Right. And then the emotion that was generated from that, I treat as useless. Mm -hmm. Not that it isn't real. I mean, you really feel the emotional sensation in the body of the panic and the terror. But, okay, if I realize that panic and the terror is from something that's a lie then the panic and terror can just be let go of. It can be dissolved. There's no use to it. It's useless. Now, if um, 
has happened. I get home from a trip to Phoenix over Memorial Day weekend. I start the car and it sounds like four Harley Davidsons. I think, oh my goodness, something's wrong with the car, right? And then we test it out. Well, what's wrong with the car? Can it move? Yes. Can we get it home? Well, we'll try it. So turns out, you know, the, the catalytic converter was stolen from the inside indoor short-term parking lot at Philadelphia International Airport, right? And so my my distress and my wondering, will I get home, you know, after a while, even that goes away because obviously we're getting home, we just can't bear the noise. And so all the way along, you're assessing, okay, what's happening in this moment? What do I think and feel? Is it based on the truth or falsehood? And if the feeling like I better be careful about how I drive is based on the truth that the, the engine sounds like it's going to blow up in the car. Mm, yeah. Then I'm paying attention to that feeling right. and being more cautious about how I drive. So it's very much, um, let's say it's almost scientific in a way. It's very physical. Um, there's a lot very of, physical. Yeah, yeah, it's so it has to have this physical basis in order to, to be real. Yeah, that also resonates. But I mentioned the mystical experiences because I often don't ignore them. And my experience, of course, my personal experience, and they oh. and I, they have revealed a lot to me. So I do trust them. And I'm always, but I have, I'm very careful, right, not to kind of, let's say, take everything in. And even when it's revealed, and I know um, that it is, it's really real, but in the sense of, uh, in a mystical sense, um, not really, we can't, I can't prove that, of course, I can't talk about it, but uh, a lot of people won't believe it. And I know some will, because they are mystics, they will believe it. They, they know about that too. But, um, but there's something about uh, having those experiences that give me a sense of, uh, of trust. Even the, the example you gave about the, uh, having the fear of uh, getting in a car accident, but then I was aware, awareness, something was brought to my attention that I, the noise of the engine. So before that, so just by the fact of being aware of the noise of the engine, that doesn't, doesn't sound, uh, it didn't sound normal. Then that kind of, to me, it's almost like a mystical experience because mm -hmm. awareness is letting me know something, which means in a way, Jonathan, then it's... Um, Everything is in a way, in a way, in a way, designed already. There's no free will, right? It really feels that way. Well, from, from the perspective of Advaita, right, the non-dual, then everything is just God-godding. Yes, one reality, yes. Right, one reality, and nothing's happening at all. It's all already finished. And then, so from that perspective, there doesn't appear to be any free will. In the living of three-dimensional life in time and space, there does appear to be free will because I seem to be making a choice. Of course, you could say, well, is the choice already made? Well, from the perspective of eternity, it's already made. From the perspective of my having to decide to turn left or right, it seems like there's a decision being made. So I find a very... Uh, very paradoxical to try to talk about, do I have free will? You know, in, in a lot of ways, 
I don't think so. And then in other ways, I think, well, (laughs) I mean, I I chose to accept your invitation. So that was a a kind of a free will, you know, but I'm not, I don't have enough perspective from the eternal point of view to really know the answer to the question. The way that Dante says is kind of, really, it's clear to me that we can only understand the infinite if we were using the the infinite instrument, the filter, <laughs> to look at it. So we are we are using the finite mind and body to kind of try to understand, have a glimpse of infinity, yeah. of the limitless. So in a way, it's not possible. <laughs> we can't, we can't really. There's so much we cannot even. Yeah, we cannot talk about, we cannot comprehend with the, with the instruments we have, body, mind. Right, and, and so we, we tend to talk in analogies and allegories and parables, and, and we also have to deal with paradox often. Okay, I'm, I know I'm eternal, and I know I'm infinite in, in the sense that the awareness that's the core of me doesn't have those boundaries of time and space, but I'm also simultaneously three-dimensionally here and now, and I have to feel my, mm-hmm, my yeah. physical sensations and mm-hmm. my emotions and notice my thoughts, right? All that keeps happening. That's very paradoxical. The mind doesn't comprehend that at all. You just have to agree to let the mind not comprehend it. <laughs> yes, yeah. See, that's the best way to do it. Yes, right. Uh, not bypassing the mind, but it's just kind of uh, giving less attention to it. I guess that's... That's how um, the best way I have found to kind of practice those non-dual understandings. Um, so talk to me about the coming up book. Um, when will it be uh, released, Jonathan? So it's the book's title, A Therapist's Guide to Be Human in Waking Up. My hope is to have it finished being edited uh, and released in September, hopefully early in the month. I have uh, a dear friend who's an artist who is actually an extraordinarily good painter. And we're trying to choose some of his works to go on the cover and in the book as illustrations. And that's the only caveat. I'm not sure he's very busy and as am I. And, you know, we're not sure whether we'll be able to match all the images quickly enough for the September deadline, but we hope so. Right. Okay. So that's good to know. I'll have, I'll make that note here for this, um, the, for the interview notes. And also talk to me about the, uh, I mean, briefly, I would love to hear the, uh, the intention and the inspiration to write all these books. I know you wrote the first one's a memoir and ordinary being. And then the second book, Simply Awake. Uh, third book, Taming the Three Ring Circus of Your Mind. And the latest one I just mentioned, A Therapist's Guide to Being Human and Waking Up. So the main intention and inspiration to write these books. Well, I think the inspiration is, um, these are the lessons of my life that I've tried to refine and give to others so that they don't have to stumble and fall and hurt themselves as badly as I did. They also often, I mean, look, nobody teaches us that we have to check our own thoughts for truthfulness. We assume that they're true because they're in our heads. Nobody teaches us how to distinguish our emotions. I'm working with a man in his 70s who can't tell the difference between his fear and his anger, doesn't understand how he feels them in his body. Nobody teaches us how to distinguish our emotions, how to talk about them, and how 
to know whether they're useful or not. And so all of these books are an attempt to help people to learn how to be human beings and also give them the opportunity to look into waking up and or to wake up spiritually themselves into what you and I understand as the ultimate goal of their lives, which is to be awake in this lifetime. And so that's the the passion and the wish behind the writing and the books. Um, it's like, okay, I have all of this understanding. I've worked with my clients in one way or another for 30 years, first as a massage therapist and also did some energy healing and now as a therapist and a spiritual mentor. How can I summarize what I've learned and offer it to people in a way that isn't complicated, isn't full of technical terms and academic terms, but they can actually understand. So that's been the passion, especially in the latest book. Yes, and I felt that. Um, it's really, there's an energetic resonance to it. Um, that's fascinating how we can, when we are open to it, um, we can feel it. It's beyond just words. It's beyond just trying to sell something. There's right. something here that's... Um, yeah, that's the the intention is to um, is to lessen suffering, um, and as as a whole for humans, and I'm very careful with that too because um, a lot of times we tend to even become too passionate and changing the world and helping so many people, and I I don't want to forget that that was the the intention of Hitler and a lot of um, sure. of those people that. That's actually the first thought. They follow that thought of changing the world, or changing, making massive change. And then um, it, it can be very dangerous too. Right. So, you know, massive change starts, well, the first principle in, in yoga philosophy is nonviolence. Yeah. So right, massive change right. has to start with nonviolence. And right. a massive change starts very locally and very individually and in very small ways. And, you know, although I had the desire to be, you know, actor, singer, dancer on Broadway and up to New York to study that, I understand that not everybody else, not everybody is going to be well known and that not everybody's reach is going to be big. And so you know, the thing that we can do as individuals is, you know, you're doing what you can to introduce people to many different ways of waking up with your podcast, which is a wonderful series. And, you know, I'm doing what I can based on my skills and my uniqueness and my experience to, in some small way, also offer whatever healing I can give to the people that I can work with. I heard from somebody, I don't know who wrote this, uh, but recently I just came across a quote that the greatest change, the greatest gift we can give to humanity is to wake up ourselves, so to be awakened ourselves. That's the greatest gift. And that kind of paused me for a while, like, wow, <laughs> so it's that simple. <laughs> Just if we wake up ourselves, then that's, that's the gift. That's it. Right, mm -hmm. because now if we are consciously attached to the divinity that we are, in the yoga Upanishads, it says, I am Atman Brahman, mm, yeah. right? This individual yeah. consciousness is God itself, yes. right? So if, if I'm awake in that and then I begin to look around and see my uniqueness and then start taking away the falsehoods that I've learned about myself and my society, and I can really be that unique 
individual. So if you think in a way, the way that Jesus was trying to teach, I think, was that God took form as him to do something special in the world that only he could do. And he says, aren't you also called the sons of God? And so God takes form as us to do the things that we uniquely can do. And then we have to find out what that is and do that. Once we are awake and we can do that, I think we've done everything that we can. Yes, I would say and, so. And, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, my life is becoming more of that as the days go on. Because at 68, one knows that, you know, one won't live forever. Mm, oh yeah, in this body, no, no, yeah, no, not in this body, not in this sure. body, no, yeah, we are eternal, but not not in this body. So I, I really appreciate what you do. I'm from a deep um, place. I call it the heart. There's, I have a lot of devotion for anything that has to do with this recognition of, of the nature of our nature. So there's something that is, uh, it's almost like being firm in the presence of a flower. That's um, the image that comes to me. So, right. That, yeah. The the Buddha seemed to indicate the jewels and flowers were very particular images of this kind of grace. Right. This kind of awakening. And yeah, flowers. I'm. Uh, I've become an avid gardener, and I was picking some roses today, um, and just smelling them and looking at how beautiful they are. And of course, they're very temporal, temporary, like we are. Um, yeah, and the, it is that flowering of the awakeness in you. That's why they use the thousand-petal lotus right. as a symbol of awakening, right? Yes, yeah, that's uh, wow. It just fits perfectly. When we see flowers, they're so beautiful. But as you said, they just they don't last long. And this is exactly what happens with humans. If we can just come here and express that uh, the smell and the, the perfume of eternity, then that's it. And basically, Jonathan, in a, way, in a very practical way, it's living without fear, isn't it? Yes, as much as that's possible. We do. We live without fear because even we know, at, even if the body would have a fear reaction because yes. of the animal nature of the body, right, right, right. we know that yeah. the eternity and the... Um, Infinity of awareness is ours in the body and then out of it. Uh, I love that way you say that. You said that just perfect, beautifully. <laughs> yes, the body will respond and react to so many things, even false things, as as you already know. The eternal. Once we recognize uh, the eternal that's always present, then. It's easy to live without fear. But I'm not really referring to fear in the sense of. I don't know, jumping out of a plane. Some people do these things. Um, I have no interest in doing any of these things. Right. That has nothing to do. I don't know what that is. Is I think my husband did that too. But it doesn't, yeah, you never really, I don't know. I don't know what that is. If you, Some people say, oh, I need to transcend my fear. So I would jump out of a bridge. I would do, I don't know, some crazy things. Yeah. But that, um, I, don't, I don't know if I call that transcending fear. It's more like... Um, it looks more like an adrenaline, dopamine kind of a search, right? Trying to well, release. It's, it's, it's almost like inhabiting the fear so much that you uh, seem to conquer it, perhaps. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be that. Or maybe having so much fear that you want to release it somehow, some of it, by uh, doing these yeah. things. Who knows? That's a great. <laughs> well, 
yeah. right? Because I, I've seen people like that around my family that they have, they seem to be so contracted that they do crazy things. <laughs> so that means they are trying to release some of that, seems yeah, to me. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're almost at the end. I know um, you, you also, your services, I would like to mention that you have, you offer individual trans personal psychotherapy, psychotherapy for men and individual spiritual mentoring. So psychotherapy for men, I was wondering why you have just for men in, in the, as, a, as a section, as a, as a service. You're very specific with the men part. Right. Do you also work with women? Oh, um, yes. I, I do work with women, of course, all the time. But, you know, initially when I started my practice in 2000, only women and gay men came to see me. And now men have less fear of coming to see me. So the person that connected us uh, was a client and, you know, a very, a very big, strong and a powerful masculine man. Right. And so these men thought that it was stigmatizing or weak to come and see a therapist. So I want to very particularly welcome men to come to therapy because it's had such a great impact on so many men and they've been so afraid to look weak in the past that I want to say, Hey, you know, this is okay. Now, even in the culture in general, it's okay to go to see a therapist and men are often more comfortable with a man. And so I wanted to make that very particular uh, as an outreach to men, because I think they've been left behind in a lot of ways. Yes, and that's true. Yeah, that's beautiful to know um, that you you are aware of that. Yes, yes. yeah. Especially when it comes to self care, self love, they they believe those things are just made for women. Those concepts. I know, and and that's changing, and I'm really, really glad that it's changing. Yes, me too. Yes. So we're almost at the end. I do have the ending questions for you. Before that, Jonathan, would you like to? Add anything that you left unsaid or read a passage in your book. Well, I, I would just say that I welcome anyone who wants to come and learn about who they really are at whatever their level is that they're ready for learning. And it's been my heart's joy to serve in healing capacities for 30 years and to offer awakening to people is the most wonderful thing that I could do. And so that's what I love. And that's why my site is called Simply Awake, because, you know, it isn't complicated. It's simple, but, you know, it's sort of like somebody, I wish there had been one person to take me by the hand and lead me, you know, through the process. But uh, I can certainly help lead people a certain amount of the way. And I'm really overjoyed to do that work for as long as I have left here. Do you see your clients online and offline or only uh, offline? I, I see clients online uh, and in the office. And if they're nearby within 30 to 40 minutes, I really prefer the office. I love to have the energetic connection with people in the office Yeah. and yeah. the three-dimensional connection. It's much different than the two-dimensional, although True. I've, I've, been of service through the two-dimensional and I've been served through the two-dimensional. So I do both. <laughs> yes. So that's good to know. And um, for the audience, and I'll have also note on the podcast notes about that, your website, I know it's very clear about that too. So it's simply awake. And mm -hmm. the ending question, uh, I'll ask you this one. 
What do you love most about being in the human body or being the human body for now? <laughs> mm. The richness of experience that I can have the experience of the smell of that rose this morning. Yeah. Even the thorn in my finger when I'm trying to prune those roses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. and from from that mundaneness to the extraordinary experience of feeling the presence of the divine in a particularly special way at times. That that range of experience, I love that about being human. Yeah, there's so much truth uh, to that. It's almost like it's the only way really to experience the divine is mm -hmm. by uh, the feeling of separation, which is just a feeling anyway. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much for your presence in this reality, Jonathan. Thank you for this beautiful conversation today for being open to the truth. Thank My you. My pleasure, Valeria. It's really, really wonderful to get to know you a little bit. I hope maybe we have another conversation yeah. even off the record. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, I would love that. So you have a beautiful day uh, wherever you are and we'll talk soon. We'll be in touch again. Bye for now, Jonathan. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Jonathan Labman and his work, please visit simplyawake.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.